Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 528 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. Now, recently, I went along to a sort of an comedy open mic night. So at an open mic night, you usually have a mix of people, mostly amateur comedians testing out jokes or sometimes even well-established performers who are trying out new material. I'm always inspired by every kind of creative person, especially anyone who gets up in front of a room full of strangers and puts it all out there like musicians and comedians. It's so unbelievably brave. What makes a good open mic night work is that the audience respects that the person up on stage is actually in a vulnerable place. I mean, yes, some jokes do work and sometimes the whole performance kind of sucks, but you're there to be supportive and to help the performer improve. I love open mic nights. If they get a big laugh, they know they can put that into their next routine. And if something kind of falls flat or gets a bit of a non-response, they know that they need to work on it a bit more. So my writing tip this week is to find an, a comedy open mic night in your area and go along and support them if you can. And of course, try to apply that same bravery to your own work. The best way to improve your writing is to share it with others. Maybe find a supportive group of fellow writers who can tell you what they love about your story and what's not quite working. A great place to start is with our very own Creative Writing Stage 1 course, where you'll not only learn the nuts and bolts of writing fiction, but you'll also get feedback from your tutor about your work in a safe and, you know, it's a non-judgmental environment. So you can find out more about that at writercentre.com.au slash creative writing. Now, speaking of authors being brave and speaking of creative people, one other thing that I did uh, on the weekend, actually, I went to a, I guess it would be called a play, a a play combined with music, but not a musical. Anyway, you may remember last year, there was this great title out. It's still selling really well by Megan Albany, and it's called The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. And it is... um, a a story that was inspired by um, someone that she knew who had cancer and it was it's about the kind of like dealing with the last days of of that experience anyway Megan the multi-talented creative that she is has written a kind of like a one-woman show starring Madeline West so it's just been to Sydney. I think it's about to go to Melbourne for all the Melbournians listening. And it's then going to go to the Adelaide Fringe for all of you South Australians. And Madeline West is absolutely fantastic. And she plays all the characters. But at the same time, there's what happens is there's a scene that Madeline West plays out. And then it's followed by a musical performance by Megan and her husband, who've written songs that go with that scene or with that part of the story and the songs are magnificent so anyway really clever idea of Megan who is an author but she has now turned her novel into what is essentially a new genre because let's just call it a play but it has accompanying and an an accompanying soundtrack as well so you know what if you're multi-talented or or multi-passionate about different types of creativity 
hey, go for it. Why not? Don't just stick to writing. Do all the other stuff that can go with it that can really enhance your story. Now let's move on to our competition this week. What can you win this week? This is awesome. I know it's going to be so popular. I have three copies of Heartbones by Colleen Hoover to give away for you this week. Oh, okay. So this author is no stranger to the New York Times bestseller list. Thanks to millions of views on BookTok, her emotion-packed books have gained huge popularity in recent years. We're talking about none other than Colleen Hoover. And yes, I have three copies of Heart Bones. Entries close on the 13th of March. Bayer Grimm has only ever known a life of poverty and neglect. After surviving by any means necessary, she finally has a hard-earned ticket out of Kentucky with a full ride to Penn State. Two short months before she's finally free, an unexpected death leaves her homeless and forced to spend the remainder of her summer on a peninsula in Texas with a father she barely knows. Begging the summer to go by quickly and hoping to remain as invisible as possible, Bayer wants nothing to do with Samson, the wealthy brooding guy who lives next door to her father and who couldn't possibly understand where Bayer's coming from or what she's been through. But with an almost immediate connection too intense for them to deny and futures leading them to opposite ends of the country, Bayer and Samson decide to stay in the shallow end of a summer fling, neither of them realising that a rip current is about to drag both their hearts out to sea. Okay, there you go. Heart Bones by Colleen Hoover. Go to writercentre.com.au slash win for your chance to enter. Entries close on the 13th of March. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And if you're at that URL in the future, if you're listening to this in a back catalogue, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition there for you to enter. Oh, before I forget, I want to invite you to a fantastic free event, a creative coaching event that I'm holding with the wonderful best-selling novelist, Kate Forsyth. It's called How to Tap into Your Creativity and Find Your Voice. It is at 7.30 Sydney time on Thursday, the 9th of March. That's Thursday, the 9th of March. It is going to be live on Zoom. And I will be talking to Kate Forsyth on exactly that, how to tap into your creativity and find your voice. And she's going to discuss practical strategies to develop your voice as a writer, to access your inner creative genius. And after my brief chat with Kate, there'll be a Q&A where you can ask Kate all your questions. Um, and I will put the link in the show notes or just have a look at the Facebook group. If you're not in the Facebook group for the listener community for So You Want to Be a Writer, make sure you join. It's free to join. And that's where I'll be putting um, this link because you need to RSVP and get the Zoom link. So that's Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Sydney time, the 9th of March. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope so. The word of the week this week is prosopagnosia. That's prosopagnosia. Do you know what it is? Okay. It's a disorder characterized by the specific inability to recognize faces, otherwise known as face blindness, prosopagnosia. And actually, Someone in our office here at the Australian Writers' Centre has a mild form of this and usually recognises people by the way they walk or the shape of their body rather than their faces. 
For some people, it can be so severe that they can't recognize their own faces or can't tell a face from any other object. Other notable people who've had some form of prosopagnosia are Alan Alder, Stephen Fry, and Brad Pitt. So, you know, if you kind of have an opportunity to meet Brad Pitt and have an encounter with him and then meet him again another time and he doesn't recognize you, that would be why. It's not because you're not memorable. Prosopagnosia. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational program, Write Your Novel. Filled with workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your tutor and classmates throughout the course. Al Campbell's novel The Keepers was picked up by a publisher shortly after she finished her course at the Australian Writers' Centre. Here's what she says. I decided to do a course because it's affordable, it was flexible, I could do it at home. The best thing for me was that I actually had a chance to show my work to other people, not to mention the input from the tutors all of whom come from the industry. At the end of the Write Your Novel course, my tutor in fact took me by surprise by suggesting, I think her words pretty much were, it's time to get your work out there. When I found out that my novel was going to be published, it was fantastic, it was, it was a high, it was amazing. I would definitely recommend the Australian Writers' Centre because if you actually look at the stats, they're really kicking massive goals. Their publication rates are are really startlingly high. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash novelwriting. That's writercentre.com.au slash novelwriting. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Today I'm talking to Jessica Detman, who is a writer based in Sydney. Her latest novel is Without Further Ado. She's also written This Has Been Absolutely Lovely and How to Be Second Best. After a decade working as an editor for Random House Australia and HarperCollins Publishers, she made the transition to writing after having children. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jessica. Thank you, Valerie. I'm so excited to be talking to you about your latest book, Without Further Ado. Do you know how many times I've spoken to aspiring writers over the last, I don't know, year or so particularly, who said, I want to write like Jessica Detman. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. <Yes. laughs> and, I, I, and, of course, I say to them, I mean, I love Jessica and I love her writing, but you have to write like you. <laughs> but it's such a great compliment to you because. It really is. Oh, you know. Um, and they're right. I mean, I, I get what they're saying. You, you write in a style that is so, it's page turning without the, you know, bombs and save the world and all of that. But you really want to just keep on reading for a whole range of reasons, which we're going to unpack, right? But yes. we're going to start with, without further ado, for those people who have not grabbed their own copy yet, and they should, what is it about? So without further ado is the story of a 36-year-old book publisher called Willa. And Willa, um, when she was 16, she saw the movie version of uh, Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, the one that was directed by Kenneth Branagh. And she became obsessed with the film, but in particular just with the way 
the opening scenes of that movie made her feel. It gave her all the butterflies and all the flutters and all the crush feelings, and she just has been seeking that in her life ever since. So she's been looking for that in her love life, in her friendships, and in her work. And um, so she's now ended up publishing romances in a really, really strange little family business. And this book uh, sort of up to a certain point mirrors the plot of Much Ado About Nothing, but only up to the point where that plot has just has to be thrown in the bin because it's absurd. <laughs> um, and so, yes, it's, it's a full-on unashamed rom-com and a love letter to the movies that make us feel those feelings. Did that movie make you feel those feelings? It did. And I had forgotten about it. I had, you know, I remembered watching it a lot as a teenager and then I kind of stopped watching it and I came across it in again in late 2020, I think, um, when it was on one of the streaming platforms. And I just watched it one afternoon and it all came flooding back to me and I realised just how formative it had been in all sorts of things in me, you know, my taste in men and my expectations of love and just ridiculousness. But I completely relate to that because I remember when that movie came out and I had the hugest crush on Kenneth Branagh and I went back to watch every movie he'd ever done. I chose to date a guy that looked like him. You know, it was ridiculous. (laughs) Um, And I find it a little bit hard to believe now, but (laughs) that's what happens to me. Well, the funny thing about the cast of that is that there is someone for everybody in that cast, you know, when I was 16, Kenneth Branagh wasn't who I was looking at. I was all about Robert Sean Leonard, who plays Claudio, because, of course, he was in um, Dead Poets. Dead Poets. Mm. Um, but now, as an adult, I'm leaning a little more towards Kenneth. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's just um, go back a bit at, because you have had a career um, in the world of publishing as an editor before you became a writer. Take us back to did you want to become a writer when you were younger? How did you get into the publishing world? Uh, I I never really consciously allowed myself to think I wanted to be a writer. I knew a lot of writers growing up. My mum is a publisher um, and had lots of writer friends and they weren't, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't see myself in them necessarily. Um, uh, but then I started I mean, I was very interested in books always. I was a huge reader. Books were everything in my house. And and I grew up around publishing. My mum used to sit in um, a playpen with a manuscript so that she could edit it and we couldn't get to it. So, you know, instead of putting us in a playpen, she was, and we could just rampage around the house, but the book, the editing was safe. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> She very quickly moved to computers and desktop publishing as soon as that became a thing in the mid-1980s. Um, but so it was always something I was around and I loved books and I did an English degree at uni and then I just wanted to have a job around books in some capacity. I was a bookseller and then I got a job as an editorial assistant at Random House and just started working my way up through that. And when did you think, I'm going to write my own novel? That was really late. Um, All of the university study of books made me think that writing books was just for old dead white men, not for me, couldn't do it. Um, Then editing books, 
um, made me realize gradually that these are just people. <laughs> They're just normal people. They have thoughts and they write them down and they do it well. And then heaps of people help them and make it heaps better. So you don't have to write a great book to start with. I, that's something I really learned from publishing is just the army that goes into making a book wonderful. And so gradually I started writing little bits and pieces and blogs and eventually once my children were too old to exploit on a blog anymore, um, I thought I would, you know, turn my hand and see if I could fictionalise their lives loosely. And then that gave me the confidence to start thinking bigger and outside the square of my own family and life. So this is your third novel and obviously you would have learnt a lot in your years in uh, you were at HarperCollins and at uh, Random House. So you would have learnt a lot during that time having had to work with many authors. What are some of the key lessons that you have taken from that that you realise I've got to make sure I do or don't do this in my own writing? Um, I think the biggest thing I learnt was what an extraordinary relationship you can have with an editor if you listen to them and they listen to you and you are simpatico and it works well. Uh, I, I just think I loved editing books but not as much as I love being edited. It's just extraordinary when somebody, um, you get to present your book to them as something that's unfo- unfinished in a sense and see how it lands and then, you you know, it's just this beautiful test before it goes out into the world and listening to an editor and then doing what they say, if it, if it resonates well with you and you think it is the right thing for the book, I think that was the biggest thing I learned. Um, and that, in fact, was what gave me the confidence to write was that knowing that somebody else was going to bring their eye to it and improve it and help me improve it, that I wasn't alone as a writer. What would your advice be to writers who don't feel simpatico with the editor they've been issued? <laughs> that's a really good question. And I think that's um, that coming up against an editor is also a really, you know, it can be a very helpful thing to, to make you realise what you want your book to be. Because even if you don't want to change something the way they want it changed, you can still take from their lack of understanding or, you know, the way they don't like something. You can still take from that that maybe another reader might also feel the same way and that you can perhaps come at it another from another angle to try and improve it. Um, but also it can just give you some more confidence when you really, really think about your work and you look at it really objectively, as, as objectively as you can as the author, that you can sometimes go, no, you know what, that's how I want it. I'm going to leave it like that. So before the editing process, of course, is the writing process. So let's talk about the writing process of this particular novel, your latest one. How long after when you saw the film um, Mm. uh, with Emma Thompson and Kenneth Bryan and Keanu and all of that on that streaming service all those years later, did you think, I've got this, this is the seed of a novel, of a new novel? Straight away. Really? Yeah, just straight away. Um, and I think I'm unlike a lot of other authors, or maybe this is other people's experience too, but I always think I can't write another book and I have no more ideas. I, like, I know a lot of people are like, oh, I have six or seven ideas for the next book and I'm just going to go through them and see which one. I, I never, ever have felt like that. I have always had this sort of terrifying blankness at the end of writing a book where I think I've written everything I can possibly write 
I have to get another job. I'll have to quit writing. And then just the sheer excitement when some tiny thing takes hold um, is really glorious. And it's also a bit contrary to popular and common writing advice, I think, which is that you've got to really stress test an idea to make sure that it will see you through the process of writing a whole book and um, that, you know, you can take that tiny germ of an idea and make it into a proper book. I don't do that. I tend to just get that tiny idea and then build on it until and then forge ahead regardless. And I think I've been lucky that it's worked a few times. So what is the, what was the seed? What was that tiny idea? Would, had had Willa formed, Willa, the main character, no. formed in your head or what was it that you thought is going to come become a novel? It was a question. It was a question of what would your life be like if you were constantly trying to replicate a feeling that something had given you, like that film. Um, and it sort of, it connected back to somebody, I, uh, a close friend of mine a long time ago who had really strange and um, literary-based ideas about love <laughs> and for a lot longer than most people do. Most people grow up and they're like, oh, no, hang on, it's not like that really. That's a, it's a bit like that, but it's but that's books. And this friend of mine just hung on to that and hung on to it, and I was always fascinated by that. And so I wanted to explore that in a character a little bit too. Okay, so then you have that idea. What is the next step in the process? How, what, how do you then develop? How then did you develop the story around that seed of an idea? Well, absolutely by cheating in this case <laughs> because I thought I will copy the plot and then see where that gets me. Um, so I literally went, all right, well, if Willa, whose name wasn't Willa until the second draft, if Willa is um, the Beatrice in this story, because Beatrice and Benedict, played by um, Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh, are the real romantic heart of that film. Um, and they're the sparring partners and they're, you know, they're Harry and Sally. They're great. Um, if she is ben if she is Beatrice, who is going to be Benedict? But then I thought when then when I came up with a character who would be, you know, put um, pitted against her, I didn't he he didn't fit for him to be as um quite as mean to her as she is to him. She's much meaner. And then I, that made me start thinking about that sort of person who is very funny but also kind of mean and doesn't have necessarily the balance of those things quite right all the time. Um, none of that is from experience whatsoever. <laughs> um, yeah, so and that's where I then you informed and then I needed to build the rest of the characters based around the plot. So I ended up with Imogen instead of Hero, um, who is Willa's cousin in the book, and went from there really. So, but how much had you, did you actually systematically plot that out with characters and then start writing or were you kind of doing it at the same time? I was doing it at the same time. Um, I did plot this out a lot more than I have done previously with my books, um, but I still ended up with this large section, probably if the book is you know, 100, if a timeline of 100, probably 0 to 50% I had plotted and then 90 to 100 I had plotted. And then there was that 
gap in the middle that I had to then figure out quite a lot. Um, and I even wrote it like that. Wow. Um, and so what's what was the gestation period? How long did it take to actually write your first draft or draft that you were happy with? Um, it took about 10 or 11 months, um, but it got really, really slowed down by the fact that I was also facilitating home learning for my children for four months of that. So really it ground to a halt during the um, lockdown in 2021, I think. Mm. And, then I, and then I wrote it quite fast and intensively over the summer of 21, 22. And so what is the, um, how do you, what's your writing process? Do you um, have set hours? Some people only do it in set hours. Do you just write in the gaps? Um, do you have a goal to reach when you are in the throes of writing? How's it work? I try and write 2,000 words a day. Well, that's quite a lot. Five days a week. Um mm. Yeah, it never, it doesn't usually happen until close towards the end when the time really, really is running out. I'm quite deadline-driven. Um, and I don't write well in the in the evenings. You know, I really write best when my kids are not here, when they are at school and when I can sit quietly in my office and work. Um, a couple of times I went away um, and stayed at my parents' place just for have to have a bit of headspace and to have had two or three days um, there when they weren't around. So I'd have a few days just to really get my head into the story and the characters. I find that very helpful to just get a run at it and not have to be, you know, always going off and, you know, making meals and doing laundry and things. Mm-mm. So when people say, oh, I want to write like Jessica Detman, and I kind of quiz them a bit further, um, it is often, I mean, it's, th- there's a lot of, um, it that's got to do with the way you observe characters or the way your characters observe other characters. And it's witty without being try hard. And it's it's all of those things that you kind of read it with this knowing smirk because either you know someone who does that or something like that or, or whatever. So how conscious are you? in social observation or when your friends do a certain thing? Is it just something that stays in your memory bank or do you, like Helen Garner, write things down copiously, those sorts of things to remember? I I don't write those things down and I always panic when I come to write a book and I think I don't know what people are like. I don't go anywhere. I just sit in this room and then go downstairs to two children and my husband. That's sort of all I do. But, I mean, obviously I must be paying some sort of attention, but it's not very conscious uh, that is, be. that's um, lucky you that you can oh, yeah. obviously <laughs> draw on something that's in your subconscious like that so easily. Yeah, I can't explain that. I think, and I don't know what the, I don't, witty is just that we, my family likes to make each other laugh a lot and that's, mm-hmm. you know, generations of that. So I guess I've grown up trying to make people laugh, um, approval seeking, you might say. Um <laughs> <laughs> so but, when you when you say you write the fifty percent and then the ninety to a hundred percent first and then the bit in the middle the the kind of fifty to ninety yeah. percent later, yeah. why and was because it I hard to fill in? It was actually I feel like it was actually more like I got to about sixty percent and then I got a bit stuck and I didn't quite know. It's that turn for me that I find a bit tricky in a plot where. You've you've set out all of the situation. You've had some troubles. 
then how do you get them back to the point where things get better? And so I, I sat, I thought, I sat stuck for a while and then eventually I went, well, I'm just going to write the end because the end was really clear in my mind and it was really fun to write. I just, like, it came straight out. I loved that. And so I wrote the last um, couple of chapters and then went back and went, okay, well, how do I get her from here to here? What are the things she has to feel and experience and go through? And where are some places she can go? Like for me, it's it's quite, um, I, I have to think of physical places to move these people to make it not be boring after a while because this book's set largely in an office um, for, for quite a lot of the story. And then she has to leave there for various reasons. And then I needed her to go places and do things. So I just started to throw obstacles that would make her have realisations. But did that writing the end unstick you? Did did writing the end make you realise, okay, that's the destination I need it to work did a bit. Yeah, it did. It helped unstick that because I started to realise what had to happen to her in order for her to feel like she does at the end. So apart from the getting stuck part, what was the most challenging thing about writing this novel? Um, I would say trying to write romance and comedy in a lockdown. <laughs> no, neither romance nor comedy really much going on. <laughs> Everything just felt horribly heavy and gloomy and, and yeah, and, and really tough to get into that happy headspace. Um, I just didn't want to write something awful and sad and gloomy and it was hard not to. Wow. Okay. And are you writing your next one now or have you reached that blank thing again where you're oh, hang- hanging got, out for I've an idea? I've gone past the blank thing. And oh, so excellent. I've got an idea now and I'm, I'm working on some um, sort of preliminary work for that. And, and, in fact, and where did that idea come from? Did that come from a <laughs> streaming service or something? That, well? came, that came from a title, like a, a phrase popped into my head and I thought, oh, that would be a good title. And then I've worked. And, and that's something I've done several times before. It never ends up being the actual title, but I'll think of something and then I'll sort of write towards that title and then the book goes off in another direction and to, or I think of a better title and then I write towards that for a while. Um, so this this title... I'm already feeling like isn't the right title anymore, but I've got some good ideas about the shape of the book and the characters and and I've made it so that it involves me needing to go overseas to do some research. Excellent. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, why do I keep writing books set in my suburb when I really, there's a whole world? Yeah, choose Paris, Saint-Tropez, wherever. <laughs> So, as I mentioned, this is your third novel. How has this experience or the writing, the creative process differed, if at all, to your first two? Um, I wasn't as convinced I couldn't do it this time. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, the first time I didn't think I could write a book. I'd I'd never written anything long form. I'd written blog pieces that were about a 1,000 words each. And when I decided to try writing a book, I just said, okay, well, in, it's just te- it's got to be 100,000 words. I just have to write 100 blog posts, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'll break it up like that. Did in that work out for you? <laughs> it's not really what a book is, though, is it? No. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, that was I really felt like a, you know, a newborn with that. And then the second book, the second book I found hard because, it for a long time didn't feel very funny and I actually had to go back and put a lot more humour into it later. Um, and so this this book 
was it was the the least painful I would say even with the pandemic happening <laughs> um, and and it was exciting to write a character who is so different from me with this one that was a bigger challenge I you know I'm, I'm writing a child free by choice character in this book I am not that <laughs> um, and mm. and it was fun to write a lot more men in this book So I want to backtrack to what you just said about your second novel where you were concerned it wasn't funny enough and you had to go back and inject more humour. Now let's unpack that because there will be people who were going, tell me, tell me, tell me, how can I go back and inject humour into my story? What's the process? What did you do to do that? Well, that's hard to describe. I think what I did was... I think I just had to lighten it up a little bit. I had to go back to the characters who were all going through stressful things and make them see the, make either them see the funnier side of their situation or someone around them see the funnier side of their situation and comment on it. I think that's the best way of describing it. Okay, okay. And so do you think of a character or think or, or sort of someone you know who's like that witty person who would make the wise crack or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, you, I, I try and think of of the way because a lot of the people in the books, you know, they're funny characters rather than the narrator being funny necessarily. Um, so I, I like characters to be kind of witty and wry and so, yeah, I had to bump that up in in several of the characters in the second book. Mm, mm, mm. And it's I also love- the observations of people too to make them funnier, to um, have, you know, adults behaving a bit more like children, that kind of thing was how I did it a bit with the second book. What was it like when you had an editor yourself for the first time? Because you, the tables are turned, right? Yeah, well, I was all prepared to be the most delightful person to edit ever <laughs> and say yes to everything. And then like all editors, I got really offended. <laughs> immediately regardless of all the things I had thought I would do and also how how not quite right I knew the book was there's some on some level you I think most people still hand in their draft and go I'm gonna be the one that they don't have to do anything it's it's never happened that it's probably gonna happen to me and everyone will be a man and then of course you get back you know 15 pages of notes that you have to sort of put aside with a little bit of fury for a couple of days and then come to and look at and go, all oh, right, no, okay, yeah, fair enough. Also, I, I on one level think that each time, but I also tend to know where the problems are. I just don't quite know how to fix them myself immediately. So I, I've used the analogy before that it's a bit like putting a house up for sale and just you paint over the mould. Um, and then the editor is the building inspector who comes and actually checks it all structurally and and points out the things that you've tried to hide. So the building inspector tells you this, the problems. Yeah. Um, they don't, they're not the ones fixing them. Obviously no. you need to fix them. But do they tell you how to fix them or do they say, here's the problem, fix it? It's a combination of both. I think a good edit, a really good editor will give you a suggestion of how to fix it and then a really good writer will take that suggestion and do something even better. That's mm. certainly how I felt as an editor. I often felt um, 
like people, like authors were being a bit lazy if I suggested a rewording of something and then they just ticked it. I always thought, oh, you know, this is your book. Don't use my words. Um, but now I'm frequently <laughs> ticking things that my editor has suggested. I think a lot of people um, would also be interested if we can just cover this because um, hmm. you started as an editorial assistant, which is a very junior kind of role. Uh, can you describe what an editorial assistant does and then how did you progress? What kind of things that you needed to do to progress to even more senior roles in the publishing industry? Um, so the very first job I had to do at, upon starting as an editorial assistant was to post out 150 rejection letters to everyone else who didn't get the job, which was a bit like writing lines on the board going, I am lucky to be here, I am lucky to be here. It was really confronting because I saw oh names God. in that of people I knew, you know. <laughs> it was weird. Um, so I did that and then... Everything, so when I started um, was back in 2002. Uh, no, I've just got to knock a couple of decades off there. And everything was still done on paper. Photocopy manuscripts with markups and post them to the authors who would then post them back. So there was, a lot of, you know, a lot of posting things, a lot of photocopying things, a lot of checking corrections. So making sure a typesetter had taken in all the corrections properly. So that in that that was the way I just started to learn how to write, how to mark up a manuscript, how to use the little squiggly symbols. Um, and then part of my job was working with licensed titles. So when an Australian publisher licenses an overseas book, repackages it usually just with a fresh cover and we use the files, you know, the typeset files from overseas. So I would be in charge of project managing those. So you'd get a little bit of experience briefing a cover designer, um, checking proofs, checking files, that kind of thing. So they were little tiny jobs that just built up and up. Um, and then one day there was a licence title that was supposed to have come to us fully edited and typeset and ready to go and we had it scheduled to be published and we had been lied to by the overseas agent and author and the book wasn't edited when it arrived. And we had about four days to edit it. All of the editors were flat out working. There was nobody to do it. And I said, can I have a go? And they had no other choice. <laughs> they said, sure, give it a go. So with the assistance and sort of oversight of two of one publisher and one editor at Random House, two very generous people, I edited my first book really quickly. Wow, so it was kind of accidental. Yeah, it was. And then, you know, obviously did an okay enough job on that and started to get little um, extra bits and pieces here and there and gradually worked up to editing full manuscripts, usually with supervision for, um, you know, the first couple, but then on my own. And then when you were in publishing, did you specialise in a particular genre at the no, time? No, I did. I did everything, yeah. Wow. Did you? Do you have a, a preferred genre? To edit or to read? To read. Um, I'm a fiction person and I like all sorts of fiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now I have to ask you a question which because you have in your bio... She once appeared as the City of Sydney Christmas Angel and sat on top of the town hall in a frock that reached the street. I did. Now, 
Okay. And because um, it was the 90s, I have no pictures. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how in the world does one become a City of Sydney Christmas angel and is it safe to actually be perched on top of the town hall? Well, okay. And how in the world do you get a frock that's that big? <laughs> the frock, I sat on the top balcony of the town hall and I sat on top of like an umpire's, a tennis umpire's chair wearing the top half of a dress and a huge pair of feathered wings made by Opera Australia that I think they borrowed them. And so I had the, that all on and then I would climb up onto this chair and then sit into a skirt and then the skirt went all the way over the front balcony of the town hall and down to the street and it was my job to sit there for about four evenings over the Christmas period. For how long? Oh, for like three hours. Just <laughs> wave at people. Yeah. Oh, my God. How does one even apply to become a Christmas angel? <laughs> <laughs> I was headhunted for that position actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was um I was babysitting for somebody who ran the Australian Theatre for Young People at the time and they were putting this together and she went, You've got long blonde hair. Wanna go sit on the top of it? I went, Yeah, sure. Oh my lord. All right. Well, it's good to draw on experience. <laughs> I'm not sure where you'll ever write. I haven't about worked that. that into anything yet. <laughs> All right. So I know a lot of people will be wanting to know um, what your top three tips are for aspiring writers who would love to be in a position where you are one day. Okay. Published novelist. Published novelist. <laughs> not uh, City of Sydney, not former City not, of Sydney not, Christmas okay. Angel. Um, I think the old bums in seats, sit down and write a book is, is a very good tip. Um, I think you should join groups or follow people on Instagram who inspire you, um, communicate with people in the writing industry. I found uh, I found that people are so nice. Mm -hmm. um, writers, by and large, in Sydney are an incredible community. I've met so many lovely people and that's actually been quite different from what I expected because when I worked in publishing, it was pre-social media and some of the authors knew each other, but not very many of them. That was, I think it was a bit more of a solitary business. And now you know, everyone knows everybody from, from Instagram, even if you've never met. Um, mm. But, yes, I got a lot of support from people who I didn't really know, you know, just chatting to them and asking questions. So I'm probably just opening myself up now to everyone asking me <laughs> advice. But, oh, you know, I'm always happy to um, reply to messages. And my third would be... Don't worry if you think that the thing you're writing has been written before. Um, I found it very daunting at the start to try and think up something original. That that pressure to be super original is really hard and not entirely possible. I don't think you know everything's been written before, but no, but it hasn't been written by you, mm. your voice and your experience. Great advice. And on that note, everyone, get yourself a copy of Without Further Ado, brilliantly written by Jessica Detman. And thank you so much for your time today, Jessica. It's my pleasure, Valerie. Thanks. 
I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jessica. She's such a great writer and her books are fantastic. Now, if you are in the podcast listener community on Facebook, you'll know that I have recently been going to a co-working space because my productivity there has been absolutely fantastic. I don't know if I'll do this long term, but it's certainly working for me right now when I need to write a lot of stuff. I've got um, some massive um, projects on. But I'm really self-conscious when I'm there because I work, you know, in the communal space. I don't have my own office or anything. And the thing is, I type really loudly. Um, it always reminds me of that scene in Up in the Air with uh, Anna Kendrick, um, you know, where they talk about typing very aggressively. But anyway, um, I kind of went down this rabbit hole <laughs> and I looked this up and this is insane, but did you know, here's my fun fact for the week, did you know that there are no muscles in your fingers? <laughs> now, anyone who has heard me type will not believe that that at all, but apparently it's true. All the muscles used to control your fingers are actually in your forearms and palms. There you go. And now I'm, you know, opening and I keep opening and closing my fist (laughs) just to see. It's kind of creeping me out. Anyway, if you're in the same co-working space as me, um, I'm sorry. (laughs) But but I am finding it extremely useful. I I actually put my um, earphones in and I listened to, and I posted this in the um, podcast listener community on Facebook as well. I listened to these study with me videos. I don't actually look at the video. There's someone actually studying, but it's usually a great view. And I listened to these study with me videos um, with jazz in the background and ambient noise. It's as if I'm in the same space as them. I know that's kind of really weird when I'm actually in a co-working space, but um, this kind of blocks out the noise because I've got the the other noise or people having conversations because I've got the earphones on. And they use the Pomodoro method where it's 25 minutes of working and that's when the jazz music is on. And then it's five minutes of ambient noise and they ding a little bell as well. So that tells me, okay, you know, get up, make a cup of tea or go to the bathroom or get a glass of water or whatever. Uh, And it's a really, I I have found it incredibly productive. I do it for three hours and my word count is, is massive. So just, hey, just a tip, try something different if you're interested. All right. This brings us to the end of this week's episode. It's been great hanging out with you. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, feel free to connect with me on social media at, uh, at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. But, of course, you can find out all of the about all of the courses that I've spoken about and all of the things that we have on offer at writercenter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.